Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ah, welcome. Uh, you're listening to um, The Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Uh, my name's Bill, and for the next hour, my guests will be sharing their journey of recovery from active drug addiction. I'd like to welcome Sarah and Nat to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Um, as members of Narcotics Anonymous, they're going to share their experience with drug addiction and how Narcotics Anonymous has helped them. So we usually start talking about growing up, about yep. our lives growing up and, and how that influenced our lives later on. So, Sarah, do you want to sort of talk about what, what, was, what was your family like, you know, uh, as early as you, you know, want to start? Um, yeah, um, my family life was, well, I kind of um, didn't feel like I belonged there and everything like that from a young age as um, there was a lot of, um, there was alcohol as my stepdad was an alcoholic and um, and there was parties and stuff growing up and kind of I just I just didn't really feel like I belonged um, in that family I kind of felt like I was pushed away even though I have a twin sister I felt like I was kind of um, like the black sheep of the family from a very young age I I didn't really have a lot of support and I kind of just did what I did and I didn't really have anyone to really talk to and stuff like that. And I was a very bubbly, outgoing kid. And I always got felt like I got shut down by yep. being happy and bubbly. And, yeah, and I was um, sexually abused as a, as a child as well. So from a neighbour, which was um, – which I didn't see that as – I didn't know that that was wrong until I was older. Yeah. About 13 when I was sexually abused again. Um and that's when I realised that I um that that was yeah wrong and that that what happened as a child was wrong. So I don't know I just kind of grew up learning um, learning about life, going through stuff myself to learn stuff like that. So the th- basic things I should have known I didn't really know. So. Yeah. Okay. So what was life like at school? Um. Well, school was. School was good for me because I'd rather be at school than being at home. Um, but I found it hard to learn. I found it really difficult to learn um, and to absorb information. I was really – I got distracted easy, easily. And, um, yeah, but into teenage years and stuff, I kept I kept wagging, not really going to school, just um, smoking and drinking and things like that. I left school in year nine. Due to my mum's mum having a nervous breakdown and moving to, she moved to Canberra. Um, I went into foster care. I was running away from foster care. So, what's it like in foster care? Um, well, I wasn't there long enough to know because I left <laughs> as soon as I got there. <laughs> so I, I just had to keep going to children's court and stuff. And then I was going to get locked up for twenty-one days because I was um, watered state yeah. and kept running away and stuff. So, yeah, they kept saying that I was absconding. So I just kept. Running, I just felt like I was being adopted into another family. Even though I didn't really feel like I had much of a family, I still really missed the family, my actual family. But, yeah. And I just didn't really know where I, f- 
um, bond in the world. And yeah. So yeah. was your sister in foster care too? Um, no, nah, she because she got along with my stepdad. I didn't get along with my stepdad growing up. Okay. And I didn't know my real dad until I was nearly eighteen. I met him. Um, so no, nah, she wasn't in foster care. Okay. So when did you start? Um, getting interested in drugs and alcohol and stuff? Um, when I was like 11, 12, I started drinking and smoking and then um, started off with marijuana. And then by the time I was 14 and stuff, I started getting into the heavier stuff like speed, um, ecstasy. And then um, when I was 15, I tried everything like um, mushies, heroin, ice. But ice became my main my main drug of choice for many, many years. Yeah. So how did you afford it? I'm saying they're expensive. Um, So what's the mechanism? Well, I kind of, like, I got given, like, growing up and stuff, like, in my early years and stuff, because I was homeless and stuff like that, it was kind of just around everywhere I was. Yeah. And I don't think I didn't have to do much to pay for it, really, except for probably I did some things that I'm not grateful for or proud of or anything as well. But it wasn't until I got later on in my using... Um, I had a break from using ice for a couple of years. I hadn't got my kids back and everything and then um, thought I'd just do it discreetly and then within a matter of weeks lost my kids again and and through that process losing my, um, my house that I finally had after being homeless and stuff like that, I um, started dealing and that's that's kind of where how I started paying for my, getting my drugs is, was dealing right. um, and supporting my habit that way. Otherwise it was probably just some of the men I was hanging out with and the... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you said you're homeless. So you're homeless from about 14. So how long did that last? Um, it's been recurring, like, like it's been recurring for many, many years. So on and off, like, I think the only time I really had stable house was the time when I finally had my kids back. Okay. And then, yeah, and that was like for a year, seeing what it was like to just live a normal life with my kids and, and not touch anything. Oh, I was drinking and still smoking, but at that time I didn't see... That was such an issue. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, well, across to you, Nat. Um, so, what was life like for you growing up? Yeah, uh, I'd describe my childhood as fun, but uh, with a bit of dysfunction that come with that. My parents uh, split up before I have memory of them even being together. So, when I was two, um, I lived with my mother mostly, and. Um, as I sort of got a little bit older, I started spending a bit more time at Dad's weekends, school holidays, that sort of thing. But the two households were distinctly different. Like at Mum's, um, there was, like, I guess, little supervision. I sort of would leave the house in the morning, come back at night. Um, there wasn't really many questions about house, school, what are you doing, where are you going, who are you with. It was just that, that just wasn't a thing at my mum's house. And um, I guess there was a bit of emotional instability with my mother. She was in a relationship with a guy that was domestically violent to her and I would see some things that little kids shouldn't see at times. And um, then on the flip side, at my dad's, um, it was a completely different environment like he was a school teacher he's married to a school teacher and there were ways that um i just sorry there there were just um rules and guidelines there that i wasn't used to so um 
I found it really confronting being at Dad's. Like I, I um, didn't like being told what time I had to be home. I didn't like being told I had to answer the phone in a certain way. I didn't like being asked where I was going, who I was with. Um, so I really preferred, even though at Dad's it was stable um, and calm, like I felt really uncomfortable in that environment. At Mum's it was somewhat chaotic, but I had the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Yep. Um, so um, at an early age, uh, I started like breaking into houses, holiday houses and the school. Um, I remember... So how old were you? This is early age? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first break and enter I remember doing with a, a bunch of other kids in my primary school, were like six or seven, were in grade one. And our teacher the year before had um, had these gold bricks. They were bricks that he had painted gold, but we thought they were real gold. So we <laughs> thought, we're going to break into the school and we're going to get that gold because we can do some big things with that gold. And so we broke into the school and um, got into his room, and but we couldn't get into the cupboard. So we decided, all right, we'll just get colouring in sheets, textures, pencils, whatever we could get our hands on. Um, and over the next like year or two, we just sort of started stockpiling colouring in sheets, textures, art supplies, just whatever we could get until eventually uh, one weekend... Oh, it was it was a Monday actually. It was a curriculum day, and I knew because my dad's a teacher that the teachers rock up on a curriculum day, but these other kids didn't, and they're in the school stealing stuff and get caught red-handed. So the gig was up, and I think um, because the teachers knew that I was friends with these kids, and I probably knew what was going on, they came to me. Um, and I had to do the walk of shame across from the school to the holiday house where we had stockpiled all this <laughs> stuff we'd stolen. I remember, I remember feeling great shame and like, oh, what's my dad going to say? I didn't care what mum thought because I knew mum wouldn't say anything. She probably wouldn't even find out, but I was really scared of um, what my dad's reaction might be. And, and my father never yelled at me, um, but he just had, I guess, a way with words that was intimidating for me in comparison to the way my mum did things. And um, so, But it didn't really deter me from doing stuff like that. I didn't necessarily keep breaking into the school, but, you know, we were always getting into holiday houses. Doors were left open. It was just fun. It was something to do. And um, probably, I reckon it was the summer going from grade six to year seven where I first started seeing kids drinking and smoking pot um, but I didn't engage in it like I just wasn't interested it wasn't really offered to me um, it was a couple of years sort of down the track when I was in um, probably year eight or something like that I reckon where um, like my good friends started smoking pot and I wasn't particularly interested in it again but um, I certainly uh, wasn't going to... I just found that when it was offered to me, even if I wanted to say no, like I didn't really have the courage to go, ah, oh, yeah, not really, that's not for me. So, so I tried tried it, tried smoking pot, um, loved it. Um, there was no real negative consequences that came with it. Um, and the same thing happened with alcohol. I think I was a, a little bit looking forward to trying alcohol after my experience with pot because... Um, I thought it would be sort of similar or the same. And um, again, um, there was no negative consequences that came 
with my drinking the very first time I drank. And when the negative consequences from drinking did start to occur, because I would binge drink, they didn't really deter me from um, the fun outweighed the bad yeah. um, for, for a <clears> long time for me. And um, I left school um, at the end of year 10. I At this stage, I'd been living with my dad for two years and it was really difficult for me to do the things that I wanted to do at dad's like because I wanted to binge drink on weekends chase girls and smoke a lot of cones and at mum's I got away with that um I wasn't questioned on it she would yell at me about it but it wasn't really an issue at dad's it was a lot harder to try and do the things that I wanted to do so I convinced him that um I wanted to leave school to get a job um, which took a fair bit of effort on my behalf. <laughs> sure. he, he allowed that once I'd <laughs> secured a job through work experience because um, he was big on education, so being a school teacher, but that was not on my priority list. Um, so I left school and not long after leaving school, I moved in with some friends. Again, that took some convincing, um, but because I'd had a job he just allowed. I think he he got tired of the fight with me. I think, yeah. and thought he's going to have to make his own choices and live live by the consequences. So, I moved out of home, and I remember um, as exciting as it was. I remember the first night feeling really lonely. Like I'm like, this isn't home. Like I don't like this. I didn't want to be at my parents, but it just felt lonely, and it was only when like the waking hours and sitting in the circles with friends and smoking cones where I felt okay but when I was left to my own devices I was a bit like mm, I don't know what this feeling is but it's not pleasant um but I guess I just ignored it continued to um take drugs I eventually um met a girl that um later became the mother of my f- firstborn son who was twice my age I was 17 she was 34 um, I'd describe her as an alcoholic at the time but she had done a lot of drugs um, in her time and and so she started introducing me firstly to um, speed um, and it was things like acid and mushrooms and um, eventually I found my way to heroin um, and I, like I was really naive to um, drugs and addiction. I, I really believed that I wouldn't end up in the places that I saw other people going who were bashing people for, for God knows what, for reasons I thought were um, not reasonable and going to jail. and uh, Like, I just thought, that's not me. That is not me. I'm never going to end up like that. And, and for a long time, um, you know, I, I was able to use these sort of heavier drugs and there wasn't any great consequences um but what happened was because I loved them so much I just wanted to do it every day so I made that my mission I tried to maintain playing footy I tried to maintain working I tried to maintain um my friendships outside of the drug using circles but eventually um the drugs started winning the battle I started dropping off football training and only rocking up on game days I started um, separating myself from the friends that didn't use drugs in a way that I used. Um, I started leaving jobs regularly because I preferred to just like do what I wanted to do. Um, 
and wheel and deal and scam and, you know, make ends meet the way I wanted to make them meet. And, um, yeah, and, and, and like that happened for a few years. And then I sort of got to this place where I'd crossed the line, I think, that, I, that where drugs started really controlling me in a, in a way that they hadn't before, where, like, I... I wouldn't do things if I couldn't get the drug. Whereas prior to that, I wouldn't be happy if I couldn't get the drug, but I would still socialize. I'd still turn up to footy training or go to work. And, and it got to this place where I was completely physically dependent on whatever substance it was at the time. And I couldn't function without it. So I'd like, um, I wouldn't even answer the phone. I'd like lock my door, shut the blinds, switch off the phone and just make sure no one could get anywhere near me in those times. So I spent a lot of time just um, isolating myself, and, and I guess my world just got smaller and smaller and smaller and okay. darker and more miserable. Okay. And, uh, how about you, Sarah? What, Sarah, what was your, uh, I guess, your feeling in that active drug-taking process? At what point did you sort of cross over from enjoying it to it becoming a requirement? Um pretty much very uh the last like my last few years of um using was when i started like every day was dedicated to that like i didn't know how to live without it i would look at people who were working and see like like even be like if i went anywhere and someone was behind a counter or whatever and they're, they're working just i'm thinking how can people function like that like how how is that happening? Like I could not relate relate to like just life in the community or anything anymore. And um and everything I did was just dedicated to making sure I could get on and yeah. um and get more drugs and and then just and then I'd spend time gambling it and stuff like that and to try to find some space for myself to breathe because I couldn't find anywhere to breathe. And then it was just an ongoing cycle and to the point where I felt like my spirit was holding on to like was like leaving my body but holding on it was just like holding on by a thread and it was like a very scary but a, a feeling that I won't never forget it was um very scary it took me to a place that I never thought I would be and um I was really malnourished wasn't eating for like a couple of years properly at all and I was stressed and just the stress that comes with it all the fear the just or because I'm an addict. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a good place to be, I'm sure. No. <laughs> nah. Well, listen, we might take a break. So you're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. Podcasts of our show are available online at www.3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree, and they're also available on iTunes. If you've got a question or comment about the show, you can call the station on Nine four one nine eight three seven seven, or you can send us an email at three cr living free at gmail dot com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at three cr living free. Uh, we usually throw in a um, community service announcement, um, and this one is about overdose awareness day on the thirty first of August. International Overdose Awareness Day is held annually on the thirty first of August. It is a day to raise awareness of overdose, reduce the stigma of drug-related death and acknowledge the grief felt by family and friends of those who have died. 
With the ongoing stigmatisation and criminalisation of people who consume drugs in Australia, International Overdose Awareness Day is as important as ever. This year, 3CR will be broadcasting a special half-hour program at 10am on Friday the 31st of August. Join us for a panel discussion looking at current efforts to reduce the tragic loss of life from overdose in Australia. Experts will offer perspectives from the fields of research, service delivery and, most importantly, peers in the community. Um, um, I'm talking with um, two recovering drug addicts, uh, Sarah and Nat, and we're talking about um, growing up and getting into drugs. And um, I think you're both sort of at the end of your teens, pretty much. Um, so, Sarah, one of the things is, you know, being being homeless has brings a whole lot of issues with it as well. And yeah. part of that is you've got to find someone to be homeless with because you can't be homeless alone in real terms. It's a sort of community. So what's mm. it like trying to find people that you sort of can live with? Um, it's really difficult. That's why everybody that in those times, everyone that I've found was always also using and stuff like that. And that's what really made me feel like I belonged. And like it was, it was the drug, not the people really. It was just, that's what brought people together. Yeah. And, um, like I was a poly drug user from a very young age. Um, I was into like GHB and all that sort of stuff and K and anything I could get my hands on really that made me feel like I, I belonged and that everyone else was using around me and it gave me like a roof over my head but it was really hard because I was sexually abused on multiple occasions um, in over multiple years due to due to homelessness and um, and using drugs. Yeah. Yeah, it must be a very difficult situation. It yeah. is. Well, it became to the point where it became the norm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, and you, you had a, a couple of children in that period. Yeah. So could you, could you keep them? Um, no. I've pretty much since they've been, like my daughter's 10 and my son's 7, so pretty much throughout their, um, their life so far they've, not been in my care there's only been like one year that they've been in my care and um like that I still carry a lot of guilt and shame and like and I feel so bad about that but like I know they're in the best places they can be at the moment but like I'm I'm hoping that when they get to their teenage years and stuff that with everything I'm doing now and they can like I can be that mum for them and support them emotionally and all sort of stuff through um their teenage years and, and growing up okay. um so Dealing dealing drugs must be a, a difficult process as well. So how did it work for you? Did it work for very long? Um, it worked for a while, but it wasn't really – I wouldn't say it was working because the type of person I am naturally is a big-hearted, um, <laughs> <laughs> easily like, like oblivious, naive, and um, easily manipulated during those times as well yeah. um, type of person. So – like it was hard for me sometimes to say no as well, and um, like it just I turned into this like so much anger and stuff had happened that I just turned into this angry ball of person inside that I just I was not me at all. I was just like a zombie, pretty much like this angry ball and just cracking it at everything and just from like a whole many many years of build up rage like inside. But I'm not an angry person, so I didn't know how to express it. I just keep suppressing it. Yeah. 
So I know it was very – it wasn't a good – like it wasn't a career choice. It wasn't something no. – like <laughs> it wasn't something that I was – um you know, I mean, I would make a career out of and stuff like that. But it was something at the time that was like survival to me. Yeah. And it was a way of like not having to, you mean, sell my body and stuff like that. Instead, sell drugs. So yeah. okay, yeah. Um, so you ended up getting caught. So what what happened? Um, well, I got caught on multiple occasions, and I was on the Kiss program and the corrections. But I like no matter how like no matter what you end up in jail. Like I ended up in jail. I ended up in jail twice last year, and. Um, it wasn't until the second time when I was in jail that I realised that, like, if I don't pretty much pull my head in and start, like, doing something about this, I'm going to end up spending the rest of my life in and out of jail. And the thing is, I always thought that my kids would never have a mum who's gone to jail. And then there I was in jail. In jail yeah. And the, the mum that's been to jail. And I was, like, looking at myself in the mirror and stuff that, well, in the mirror that's not really a mirror. You can hardly see yourself. But yeah. <laughs> whatever I could see of myself, I was just like... What am I doing here? Like I didn't, I didn't, I know that I don't belong there, and and I was just like, it was just, and coming up to Christmas last year, I was in jail, so it was like a really crucial time for me to like just show me everything like at once, like what I'm doing to myself and my life, and it gave me that break really from society to get myself to kind of time to think, and um. And then from there, I was um, blessed with being able to have bail into a rehab, and that's where my journey's taken me to where I'm sitting right now. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, Nat, um, I think we left you where you were basically using on a daily basis, yep. and everything else had become secondary. Yes. Uh, so, uh, dropping out. You know, you said you dropped out of footy, and you dropped out of social life and you started shutting the doors and isolating yep. so uh, it's a downward spiral from there mm, yep so yeah as my drug use started to increase i guess the constant consequences started to get worse and uh the things i would do to get drugs like increased and escalated um to the point where i like I barely recognize that person today as the person that I was when I was that desperate and, and doing whatever it took to get a drug on a daily basis. I um, I reckon um, like I, I probably at around about the age of 22, three or four, I started like contemplating the idea that, okay, like certain drugs were an issue. Like, I'm like, okay, injecting heroin is an issue. It's frowned upon. Um, maybe I need to curb that. And so I went through this period of uh, where I'd just continually switch the substance I'd use. And I'd get periods of grace from doing that where, like, the heroin would become really um, problematic for me. I'd go, right, I'm going to stop heroin. But the the idea of actually stopping drugs altogether never occurred to me. I'd switch to amphetamines or get on methadone or prescription medication all the way through still drinking, still smoking dope um, and really still naive to addiction and, and how it looked in me and um, certainly uh, kept everything I did a secret, um, minimised what I was doing even amongst probably the drug addicts. I, I just like to try and feel like I was controlling what I was putting out 
to people and um I th- you know I, I thought I was doing a good job of that but some feedback I've been given over the years since coming into recovery has been quite different to how I saw it I've been told of times when I've had friends bump into me in the supermarket and I'm talking to myself and like I have no memory of these things and Sarah just reminded me of reoccurring Sarah sorry Sarah <laughs> reminded me of um, <laughs> reoccurring homelessness through my 20s um, where I'd be sleeping in tents in like vacant blocks around the peninsula and living in cars and sheds and couch surfing and um, yeah it certainly wasn't what I signed up for like Sarah said, um, it got me by surprise. It was like a, a sneak attack addiction on me. Yeah. So what was it like with your friends? Um, so I, I just eventually made sure, like I separated myself from friends that um, didn't use in the way I did and sort of created a new circle of friends or associates, whatever you want to call them. I remember on one or two occasions, a really good school friend, um, he challenged me on a couple of things. He, I remember we were smoking bongs and he cracked the shits at me and goes, all you ever do is talk about drugs. And I, I remember feeling really offended, really shocked, but like really having that moment of going, oh my God, like what I'm doing is not really acceptable to even my friends. Like... And when he found out that I was using heroin on a methadone, years later he had a conversation with me where he said, he goes, like, I was a bit frightened of you. I didn't know if I could trust you anymore. Um, But I I had no concept or ability to be able to uh, understand what other people might be going through while I was going through what I was going through. Um, I was just incapable of it. Yeah. So what about the, the people you were using with? Were they a stable group of friends? No, that that changed a lot. And at the end of my using, like, I didn't even like hanging out with drug addicts. Like, the most I'd have to do with drug addicts in the end was if I needed to score for them so I could get something out of it. Um, or if I was going to a dealer's house or something like that. I, I Like, I just didn't like at the end of my using sort of what came along with it or the people that I, I had to mingle with to do what i needed to do so really isolated at the end yeah so did you trust them no (laughs) i had this um hope that they weren't going to rip me off hope that they were going to give me drugs that worked but i certainly didn't trust anyone Mm. right okay um so back to you Sarah, um, Sarah, Sarah. Uh, this, is an, this is an ongoing thing. <laughs> the wrong <I'm> to it. <laughs> so you said you got bailed and you got into rehab. So how did that change your life? Um, it wasn't as such. I don't. I wouldn't say it was. It was my, my determination within myself and. And the fact that oh, I wanted to change myself. Like if you if you really want to, you can get sober in a brewery. Yep. You mean you can be. In a, being in a drug den and gets and be like not touch anything. If you really want to, you can be surrounded by like addicts or like still using stuff like that. And if you don't want to touch it, you don't have to. But because I hit my spiritual rock bottom to a place where I thought I hit rock bottom multiple multiple times over many many years, but it wasn't until the second time in jail and the feeling of feeling how stuck I felt, really stuck, and um, just like all these aspirations and stuff started going through my head, like things I wanted to achieve, things I wanted to do differently. 
and like like just the gift like God to me is like gift of desperation and that was like the gift of desperation like the desperation inside jail that time was a massive wake up call and like the like the prayers to the universe and stuff like that that I did um and then finally had like the answer and stuff like that like I felt I had a spiritual awakening from that moment and stuff like that so I was really like blessed and I I made a promise to myself when I was in jail that if I do get bail and get an opportunity to do something about my life and at the time, like, I, I said I would just be grateful just to be able to smoke cigarettes. Like, I don't need yeah. to be going to <laughs> or anything. Cigarettes was okay and that's it. And that's pretty much, like, because I promised myself and I've stuck to that promise now to myself, nothing's got in the way of my recovery at the like, and I, I, don't, I won't allow it to. Yeah. I've written a good bye letter and everything as well to it. And it was the most traumatic and um, traumatic relationship and most um, yeah, traumatic relationship addiction is the most longest relationship I've ever actually been in. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how did you get into NA? Um, I went to NA because when I was in jail last year, the first time I um, – for that short period, I – I think that maybe they're doing H and I at NA, which is hospitals and institutions, and doing yep. talking. And um, so I kind of got introduced to NA there, and I read, was starting to read the big blue basic, basic textbook um, from the library in there, and that's how I kind of got onto it. But it wasn't until like, when I got released and I went to one NA meeting, and like I felt really guilty because I had used that day, and then so I stopped going for about another six months until I ended up in jail the second time, and then. When I got bailed, I got bailed to a twelve-step rehab, and that's when we started. Like, and it's like um, a compulsory thing that you have to do at least three times or so a week. Yep. And I just, as soon as I walked in those doors, and the welcoming and the feeling of belonging and people understanding the similarities of everyone and the love, the, like the natural love, unconditional natural love that's filled and stuff like that, and just the warm, the warmth and the feeling of having a family um, and belonging is like. I just like put myself straight in, straight in the deep end, and just got involved. Well, yeah, got involved. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, you're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, I'm talking with Sarah and Nat about recovery from active drug addiction with the help of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, so uh, I guess we've sort of got to the point of um, with you, Sarah, about you know getting into NA. So, how did Matt? How did your transition to the point of realizing that you needed help? How, what was that? How did you get to that point? I didn't come to that point. I had found myself in a position where I'd done a crime that was bigger and worse than anything I'd ever done before. I was like a petty thief; would steal stuff. Um, like and do whatever I could to sort of get drugs but I'd got myself to a point where I I was suicidal I'd been suicidal for months I didn't really care for myself I hated myself and um, I was living in a caravan park in the caravan next to me there was a young couple they were heroin addicts we'd found ourselves Selves drinking together on this day. I'd taken uh, numerous amounts of pills, codeine, Valium, mixed with alcohol, and someone suggested that we needed to do an armed robbery to get some heroin. And me being 
at such a low point in my life and as intoxicated as I was, I, without hesitation, said, I'll do it. And um, found myself about an hour later um, walking into a service station, demanding money, and I, I was so intoxicated that like, I, I was like, I think I asked for a packet of smokes, then I asked for the money, and I'm like, and I'll have the coin tray too. And I found myself staggering out of this service station, um, dropping coins all over the place. Unbeknownst to me, an off-duty security guard had just pulled into the servo, saw what was happening. He rang the police, and it felt like within minutes there was sirens, and I had police on my tail. And I describe it like this: like I, I was jumping back fences, and I left the trail of one and two dollar coins and notes all the way to the bush that they found me in. So. I then ended up having a family friend who was a barrister who suggested to me that, like, if you want to maybe not do a stint in jail, maybe you better go to rehab. Um, I didn't want to do either. I didn't want to stop using drugs, but I certainly didn't want to go to jail. So I'm like, all right, all right. And it took three, four, five months before I ended up in rehab. So how, what did you do in that time? I continued to use the way I did. I was couch At first, I was bailed to my dad's house, and I just couldn't stand it. I was so buckled and bent out of shape at this point that if he just asked me to like help out with anything, I'd get angry, I'd spit venom at him. And um, so I left and um, just sort of started couch surfing and trying to get into rehabs and was still really just um, nothing had changed. Even though I was facing jail, nothing had changed. So I couldn't stop. Like even if I had the thought of like I need to stop, um, I physically and mentally wasn't capable or strong enough of or knowing what to do. Um, so when I ended up in rehab, um, they started taking me to Narcotics Anonymous uh, every day. Um, I was in that rehab for about five weeks, um, reduced off methadone. I was like 11 days clean um, and then I had to go back to court. And I remember the guy from the rehab told me to pack a bag because I might not be coming back to rehab on that day I might end up in jail and I thought you're talking nonsense I'm coming back they know I wasn't going to do anything really bad I'm a good guy um and he just said to me Nat like do you know what you did you did an armed robbery like that's pretty full on and but like I didn't see myself in that light Mm. I still I still thought I was a good guy and like I did lots of bad things that I'm not proud of throughout my using. But I still had, um, as Sarah sort of described, this little flicker of hope inside me that, like, I'm, I'm not all these things that are happening to me. Um, so anyway, I went to court, and I remember um, when the judge goes, like, he, he goes, take the prisoner away. And it took a couple of seconds for it to kick in. I looked around, I'm like, holy crap, that's me. And I went to jail uh, I was on remand for three months, um, came straight back to rehab because at that point uh, before I ended up in rehab I was homeless um, so I thought it's a good idea to, to again just to save face with family and yeah. whatnot, go yeah. back to rehab. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so was it different the second time you got into rehab? Nope. Um, I still <laughs> at that point had not been able to really admit defeat or that there was there was bigger problems than I even realised. And um, anyone who suggested like that this might be an issue or that might be an issue, I took great offence to it. And But I played the part of the like sort of the recovery robot. I did that quite well. But internally, 
nothing was changing. Um, I still, I, I sort of had come to the conclusion, all right, I'm not going to shoot up heroin, but like I'm definitely doing Eckies on New Year's Eve, my birthday, going to like smoke joints and have a drink. Um, and when I eventually left that rehab, I tried that, but very quickly I went back to my drug of choice, which was heroin at that point, and found myself in a position where um, I couldn't stop using and I wanted to stop using and I just couldn't stop. So how long did that take to get through that? Yeah, so it took, from when I left that rehab, it took three years before I got myself into a position where I was just like, I need to reach out here, like I need some help, I cannot do this alone. Um, But it was really frightening for me. I think there was a lot of fear of judgment. There was a lot of ego attached to the fact that uh, I thought I was better than drug addiction and that I could beat it by myself. Um, But as soon as, like, I put my hand up and um, asked for help, like, things started to change for me. Um, Because I think I just started to take ownership over what was happening I'd had a little bit more awareness of, mm. of an understanding of um, the things I was doing and where it was taking me. Okay. Uh, so, Sarah, once once you got into NA, you said you felt you identified yep. and you felt connected to the organisation. So what sort of things were you doing at that point? Yeah. Um, I was started finding myself, I guess, and, and feeling like doesn't matter who I am, where I've been and what I've done, I'm, I'm welcomed and, and people respect me for me no one's out there to use me and take advantage of me or anything people are there to listen and to support and to reach out a hand and be there no matter what so it's kind of like that feeling that like all over wanted is in that one is in the fellowship and like since I've been in recovery um the, the amount of support from everywhere like studying myself for an AOD and mental health now um having that support there as well and and just giving back to the community in ways that, like, working for the Australian Anti-Ice Campaign and and other services now and just having that, like, just an amazing group of support and stuff around me now from all different areas and just the people are amazing and the love and everything like that and giving back with the NA, like, doing service and stuff with NA. Um, I did a couple of performances over the weekend for the convention and, like, just the amount of support and love. It doesn't matter, like... Just everyone's there for you, and it's a family. It's, it's unconditional. You, you could just walk into a room just one time, and it's like you already know everyone. Everyone's already got their heart out open to you. So, yeah, I know it's just that feeling that I was longing for for many yeah. years, and I found it within fellowship. So, yeah. there's a lot of trust, isn't there? Yeah, that people just take you face value as you are. You don't have to be any better than what no. you are. Yeah. yeah, as long as you're trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. okay. So. I suppose you're having been in prison and got out. So what? What's the? How? How are you staying out of prison? What's the process? Um, what's the mechanism? At the moment, I'm on a deferred sentence. Um, I'm on a deferred sentence and haven't been sentenced back to jail due to the fact the magistrate has seen the efforts and everything I am doing and commending me on the facts that I'm doing so well and giving back to the community and and using my experiences now to hopefully help others and and hopefully save others' lives in some way, shape or form and sharing my experiences and what I've been through now. So I'm still got caught pending but that's but I'm hopeful that everything will be okay because like I um because he's pretty much told me that everything I'm doing is like 
is amazing. Right, like, yeah, 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 the right thing. Yeah. yeah. So does that mean that you have or you will have better access to your children? Um, I'm not too sure how that's going to all pan, pan out. That's a big one. There's, there's a lot of trust broken within the family and it's fair enough because, you know, like they've done a lot to help. Like they're doing a lot now to help me like to look after my children and stuff like that and they've been doing that for multiple years now. So, But there's still a lot of trust that's been broken that I've really got to keep working hard and just got to keep on the road I'm on and one day I'll be able to be that mum that my children need. And that's the aim of the yeah okay aim of what I'm doing now yeah okay um, so are you ashamed of where you've come from? Um, I was ashamed, but I'm not anymore. Um, now I'm actually proud to know that I'm a recovering addict, and because that can help others now, and like it's a massive it's a massive thing. There's it's 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 like a crisis really, and there's lives being taken and stuff with this disease and. I just want to be able to reach out and help others now, and and help help others see what I couldn't see. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a big one, is it? Because it it, it is it's a bit of a a blind spot for people who are who don't who do have a problem yeah. that they deny. They really can't see the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was lucky as well that um that I had never been to a rehab. I kept getting told before prior to my jail and the 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 blessing of being bailed or rehab. Um, prior to that, like whenever anyone mentioned that I need to go detox or rehab, I was just like, no, I just need a home or no, I just need this. No, I don't have an issue. No, no, no. Like it was every, everything but the fact that I, I needed that until um, – so I was lucky that I had never been to a rehab because I knew for, know for a fact that if I had been prior to the point of knowing that – Of wanting to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity. I'd probably still be in jail today. Um, but because I – because I would have ran away um, prior to the new opportunity that I had. And I was in rehab for seven and a half months. And, yeah, so and now I'm just over nine months clean. So Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so what's it like now compared to what it was like before as about your, the control you have over your life? Um, it's amazing. These are things I could never – I could only ever dreamed – like I couldn't even dream of them because I couldn't even see this. But my life has turned around so much and – like, this is, I'm living a life that I never thought possible for myself, and I could not see with all the with all the darkness and everything around me for many, many years. And and just every day is a miracle, and every everything in life now is a blessing. And I'm very grateful. I know life's going to have its ups and downs. It's, lo- it's life, but it's just a matter of not picking up and and just yeah, reaching out. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, back with you, Nat. Um, so coming, you know, coming out of out of jail, mm-hmm. um, what what's happened since that time? Yeah, and how's life changed for you? Yeah. So I didn't exactly take to NA uh, at first, um, but I kept finding myself in in rehabs that would keep taking me to NA, and and what was happening for me that was simmering under the surface and I didn't really recognise it, was that a seed had been planted. And what I was seeing in people when they would get up and they would share and they'd talk about um, the things they had done, the places they had ended up in, um, the like I guess the 
toxic emotional states I'd end up in. And they talk about it in a way not that was glorifying like crime or drug use, but sort of putting the hand up and going, I've been here, I've done that, and I've found a way out. And and that for me was, I'd never seen that before. I'd Like everyone I knew, like denied, lied, minimized, and that's what I had done. So it was something that was really powerful that I was seeing that sort of um, took an edge off that guilt and shame that Sarah spoke about um, that I, I'd never sort of had that release before. And when I started to to share and let go of some of the things that, that I was ashamed of, um, things started to shift for me. Um, recovery started to kick in and... Um, like we hear around the rooms that saying, uh, if you don't get recovery, recovery gets you. And that's what happened to me. Yep. So what are your relationships like now? Um, yeah, so relationships is one of those things that I really, um, it's been something that I've avoided my whole life. Um, like sort of Sarah was saying, she'd see people doing work and I, I would walk past restaurants, see families having dinner and just think, what the, how does that work? Why are they happy? Like, how are they enjoying it? How can they do that? How can they do that? And now I find myself in, like, it's the little things like that that I thrive on, like conversations, relationships. It's not the things that, uh, like, going overseas or going for a skydive or, Mm. like, I like that stuff, but it's the little relationship stuff that gives me my spark that um, I never thought I'd find in things like that yeah so have you reconnected with your dad and your mum yeah so I I did spend 20 years really separating myself from my parents um and I'm not going to pretend to be son of the year who rings them regularly and goes there all the time but we're fine yeah like we see each other often enough it probably should be more but it's a lot more than it used to be yeah that's right yeah yeah, you've got to look at it and put it in perspective, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I think we've pretty much reached uh, the end of the show. So um, that's all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Sarah and Nat for coming in today and sharing their recovery uh, experience with us. Um, thank you very much. Well, thanks heaps, Bill. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week uh, when we'll be talking about living with food addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. Um, so we have them on occasionally, and they're very interesting to hear. Unfortunately, um, Black Noise Radio uh, can't be with us today because Black Betty's not well. So we're going to bring you part two of uh, National Indigenous Music Awards that were held in Darwin's Botanic Gardens Amphitheatre on the 25th of July. Uh, and that, um, uh, that program is brought to us thanks to Community Radio Network. Um, so... Um, to take us out, I'll just play a short CSI. Here's one about the Jabaluka calendar. 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjateme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirror.net.